0: On Friday night, I was able to go to a Yankees game with some of the leadership from Love Life and had the chance to sit next to one of their new directors. I was able to get to know him and hear some of his experience in sidewalk ministry. One of the more interesting points was when he shared that he's a former cop and that he still carries. And if you don't know what that means, don't worry about it, uh, but you'll be able to figure it out. He mentioned that he has had guns pulled on him twice while doing ministry. Me, being an intellectual, am aware that this internet meme phrase should start with the word I, not me. And further, me, an intellectual in my own CWP training, learned that you would be legally justified to shoot someone who pulled a gun on you. Because it is what? Self-defense. Self-defense. Thank you. So I asked this former cop, what kept you from shooting either of those individuals who threatened to shoot you? And he gave his explanation, which would take too long to unpack right now. But the summary of the matter is this, that self-defense is a weighty thing. The need for self-defense indicates that a wrong has already been done, so it's a serious matter. The topic of self-defense can be a bit uncomfortable for those who are not comfortable thinking carefully, and it is no less true in regards to today's passage and the topic that it addresses. So I've titled this message, In Defense of Gospel Preaching. In Defense of Gospel Preaching. The first major section of our text, this will be divided into three points, and I do not have slides, so our clicker can just relax and don't worry about clicking, um, the first section is verses 1 through 12, and I've titled it 16 Questions in Defense of Gospel Preaching. I'm not going to make our first point have 16 sub-points because there's a lot of redundancy, and I believe that these 16 points are actually distilled into three points, and those three points, which I will point out, are distilled into one point, which is a defense of gospel preaching. These 16 points are all about defending gospel preaching, these 16 questions. So looking at verse one, he says, am I not an apostle? That's question number one. He has, he has been attacked. He has been accused by the Corinthians, as we've discussed week after week. The super apostles have come into town after he left and they've tried, or perhaps they even arose from within the church, people that he knew. But nevertheless, these super apostles are within the church and they're accusing Paul to the local people of being inferior, not being good enough, not being legitimate, uh, all sorts of accusations. And so he is addressing this. He is defending himself and, in fact, defending gospel preaching by listing off 16 questions. Oh, Paul, you're being too defensive. Well, we'll address that. His first question is, am I not an apostle? These are rhetorical questions. The answer to each of them is obviously yes, Am I not an apostle? Yes, my name is the apostle Paul. Secondly, am I not free? Yes, he's free. This word free is primarily in relation to Judaism and, and the law. Is he under the bondage of The Old Testament law and he says yes he is free from that bondage the third question have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord the answer is yes by the way that's one of the requirements for an apostle an apostle has to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ this is how we know there are no real modern day apostles if someone tells you oh my name is apostle so and so they're not telling the truth they have not seen the resurrected Christ with their own eyeballs. So Third question, have I not seen the Jesus Christ our Lord? Fourth question, are you not my work in the Lord? In other words, I planted your church. I start like you guys would not exist if not for my labors. He doesn't go all hyper-Calvinist in this moment and say, oh, well, I had nothing to do with it. It was all the Lord, praise the Lord. No, he says, I labored, And you're the fruit of it. Now, yes, of course it was God working in him. Of course it was the Holy Spirit awakening these people. Of course, all of those things, but that does not discount the fact that he was the one who preached the gospel to them and that they need to listen to what he has to say. Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, if those people attacking me don't view me authoritatively, well, at least you guys know better because you know me, you know my background, you know our interaction. By the way, this is a sermon that has any level of self-defense to it is, is much more nerve-wracking or unnerving for a pastor to preach than to just straight up go after a Pride Day sermon. For Paul to defend himself or to feel as though he is being objected to or argued against or accused, it's an uncomfortable thing to deal with. The fourth, uh, fifth question, I put them in letters instead of numbers so that it didn't confuse Microsoft words, so I have point E, which is five. But do we have no right to eat and drink? He's already dealt with that. We talked about it in the sermon on Liberty and conscience. Yes, we have the right to eat and drink. Next question. Do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles, the brothers of our Lord and Cephas? Cephas is Peter. The reason why Paul is raising these questions is because these are the points at which he is being accused. He's being attacked on these points. And so he stands his ground and he fights back. I thought Jesus said to turn the other cheek. It's not very Christ-like of you to defend yourself. Well, you're more holy than the inspired writer of the book of 1 Corinthians. Verse 6, is it not only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Another point at which he's been attacked. We'll clarify these here in a few moments, so just bear with me as I'm reading it. Next question, whoever goes to war at his own expense? A soldier doesn't go to war at his own expense. That would be weird. You don't have that much money. You need more ammo than you can supply. So you need the government to be filling up your... Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Again, these are obvious questions. He's he's stating them in such a way that the person should be able to fill in the answer in their minds. Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk of the flock? That would be crazy. Do I say these things as a mere man? Is he saying these things of his own authority as just a guy? No, he says, I'm saying this on the authority of the word of God. I'm saying this on the authority of scripture. And now he points to the Old Testament, Does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. His next rhetorical question, is it oxen that God is concerned about? The answer is no, it's not about the oxen. Does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt. This is written that he who plows should plow in hope and he who threshes in hope should be the partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, it is a great. Is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? So, what's going on in this paragraph? It's it's kind of a weird situation, but basically, he's being accused by these Corinthian super apostles of not being legit, not being the real deal, because he has not. Avail himself of the rights and privileges that are due to him. And so the super apostles are accusing him of being less than or being inferior, or not being a real apostle because he is not doing the things that they're doing. So Paul builds his case with 16 questions asked in sequence, and he is seeking to prove a particular point. And that particular point is defending himself. Why? Why is that? Well, because accusations have been raised against him in the church at Corinth. His opponents are accusing him in many ways. So please look at verse 3 for an explicit reference to this. And I want to be clear here just in case people are thinking that I'm doing a topical sermon where you like launch off into something else. Verse 3 says, my defense to those who examine me is this. He says my defense because he's being attacked. He says this because he's being accused. Um, Commentator A.T. Robertson says on this verse, the critics in Corinth were, quote, investigating Paul with sharp eyes to find faults. How often the pastor is under the critics' spyglass. Twisted accusations are the bread and butter of the super apostles. Taking an element of truth and mixing it with their agenda to destroy Paul to try to usurp his authority, to take over the church. This is an all-too-common tactic that has been used again and again and again by the enemy throughout the ages, but Paul is very, uh, is very experienced with this, this play. Satan only has one play. He runs it again and again and again and again and again throughout the ages, throughout all churches. Conflict and accusation follow Paul wherever he goes, but so does the goodness and mercy of the Lord. Paul often remembers who he was before Christ and what he truly deserves in his own merit. And this keeps him humble. The accusers might be false. The accusations might be lies. Or 1% true and 99% a distortion of the truth. But he, nevertheless, he remembers, who, who am I outside of Christ? It keeps him grounded. It keeps him from stumbling and losing his faith. When he's locked away in a prison dungeon and rats are chewing on his toes. He remembers the manifold wisdom of God and he remembers the grace that has, bestowed, that has been bestowed to him. Further, he remembers the resurrection, that final greater resurrection that includes more people than just Jesus, when all who are dead in Christ shall rise, and that promise that he too will rise even though his enemies kill him. This conflict in Corinth, this particular conflict is about money, specifically his salary. Now it's uh unusual situation it's it's not a a typical financial debate but the question is should Paul receive a salary a lot of people are saying yes and Paul is saying well I'm not gonna take your money but he also says yes I should be paid but they are insisting upon it but there's more going on the question is should Paul be under the control of those who pay his salary For we know that functionally the golden rule is not due unto others. The golden rule is he who has the gold makes the rules. So it seems that those in Corinth were challenging his legitimacy as an apostle because he did not exercise his rights as much as they did. In other words, he didn't drive as fancy of a car as they did. He didn't have as much gold jewelry as the super apostles did. So they attempted to use this difference to create a point of contention and argumentation to compare himself to themselves. Think of it this way. They're saying, Paul is pathetic. Paul is poor. He doesn't eat the finer cuisine like we do. He doesn't have money. He doesn't eat the nice food. Oh, and by the way, he doesn't have a wife. He's not as good as we are. So these 16 rhetorical questions are actually addressing three particular topics, and those are the the three topics of money, food, and family. So first, money. Paul has chosen to forego taking a salary from the church that he planted in Corinth and other places, he's also done this, in order to be free to exercise a wider range of ministry than he would have if he felt financially beholden to them. Believe it or not, I feel an obligation to be here at PBC most every Sunday. Hope that's not a surprise to you. Why? Because y'all pay my salary. So I'm going to be here. And I try to be here as much as possible. I schedule trips around not missing Sundays. I say this the Sunday after I miss the Sunday. This situation that Paul is addressing is a very basic, simple business principle, which is being your own boss or is working for someone else. Setting your own schedule versus being at someone else's every beck and call. I am very thankful on a personal note. I'm thankful this is not a problem here, but churches are not immune from being places where those who have money feel that they can throw their weight around by attempting to control the direction of the ministry simply because they have money this is a very classic move it happens all around the world in churches where the the rich guy in the back is sitting there with his pockets stuffed full of gold coins and he's throwing them in the offering plate very loudly and everyone knows that's the rich guy and then he meets the pastor at the door and says pastor you know i i, I don't agree with fill in the blank, whatever the thing was that was addressed in the passage and therefore made it into the sermon text. And then he might say, you know, I don't want to be in a church where they preach on fill in the blank. And so they attempt to manipulate and control the direction of the church through the use of money. And that is the great challenge for paid pastors, when you have people like that, if you have people like that, and again, I'm thankful it's not the case here, but I have experienced that at other times in my ministry. You feel handcuffed. You feel stuck. What are you supposed to do? You don't own your house. This is New York City. We're renting. And at any given moment, you're between 10 bucks in the bank and more than $10 in the bank. And so you have to keep things going somehow, And so, because of that scenario, Paul has decided that he has more freedom to say whatever needs to be said if he's taking care of his own bills. It's a basic principle even of like, uh, if you go to lunch with somebody, the person who pays for the lunch can dictate what you talk about at the lunch. It's just how things are. So Paul has made it very clear in these first 12 verses that though he has not received money from the Corinthians, he could, though. He could, if he chose to do so. And further, he has other rights and freedoms in Christ that he could avail himself of, but he has chosen not to. And the other two, which we'll address right now, are food and family. So number two, food. He has at times limited his diet, his literal food, the, the food that he eats. He's limited for the sake of reaching the Jews. You understand the concept of kosher foods? So at times, Paul is forsaking eating food that would offend Jews in order to reach Jews. He has limited his diet in different ways in order to reach them. But then at other times, he has limited his diet in other ways in order to reach Gentiles. We spoke about the meat-offered-dietal situation, where a Gentile who comes out of that pagan sacrificial system, they would be thinking about those things, whereas perhaps a you know, well trained, well-behaved Orthodox Jew, but they've never stepped foot in a temple like that. They don't think anything of that particular brand of beef. They're just like, whatever, it's, it's beef. I can eat beef. Can't eat pork, but I can eat beef. So Paul is limiting his rights in different ways to reach different people. He doesn't have to have a certain food. He's very flexible for the purpose of spreading the gospel. He's not demanding, no, I must have this type of food because I am the apostle. For those who, hopefully you all know, but for those who know Mike Abendroth, I love Mike Abendroth. He is uh, a very funny person. If you are around him in... um, outside of just hearing him preach, but sometimes when he preaches too. And sometimes he will make these jokes that are like inside jokes about um, green M&M's. Uh, I'll be like, hey, can you come preach for us in October? he say, yeah, but I'm going to need green M&M's. So imagine with me a scenario, you, you know, pretend that the m M&M and store doesn't exist, okay? So you go to the grocery store, and you buy the big pack of M&M's and you dump it out on the table and you're sitting there sliding out all the green ones because your guest preacher is picky and he will only eat green M&M's. I promise you, there are preachers today who are very famous and you have all listened to their sermons and they are like this. They will send the food back to the waiter, to the kitchen, if it's touching on the plate. I did not want my salmon touching my broccoli. Throw a fit. Make a stink at a restaurant, a nice restaurant, you know, like a four-star place. Like, this is not cheap. And here you are, reformed preacher of the gospel who's preaching at some of the biggest conferences in the country, throwing a fit because your food wasn't exactly the way you wanted it. Now, Mike happens to know these people, and that's why he's seen it with his own eyes, and I've seen it, and I've heard about it, and so that's hence the green M&M joke. That way of being, first off, is wrong, and it shows you you just are missing something. Like, something is, like, there's a block in your brain somehow to understand that... that's insane. Okay, sure, you have a right to be a diva, kind of, but it's going to create problems. And it's going to limit the spread of the gospel. Those people have never preached here, for example. So Paul gladly, freely says, you know what? I can eat or not eat this thing or that thing. It's for the sake of the gospel. It has nothing to do with allergies. It's just opinions and preferences. And he says, I'm going to let go of my uh, opinions and preferences, and I will be the most chill dinner guest you've ever had. You inviting me over for dinner, and you're serving me pork chops, and I'll say, praise the Lord, this is great. You've invited me over for dinner, and it is kosher Mediterranean, and I say, praise the Lord, this is great. And then your four-year-old son is sitting there, wait a second, Daddy, I thought you hated Mediterranean food. And he's like, shh. But instead you eat it with gladness and thankfulness, and you don't throw a fit. So that's number two, food. Number three, family. Paul has the right to marry a believing wife, as do all the apostles and church leaders. The requirement, we'll skip forward a you know, thousand years, the requirement of lifelong singleness of the clergy that was eventually developed by Rome is an unbiblical requirement. Yet Paul has chosen not to marry a believer, slash, remarry in order to have greater freedom and less practical concerns as he carries on his work as an apostle. Again, remember there in Corinth, there's all kinds of weird teachings being promoted among the super apostles that you either should not marry or you should marry, you must marry. And if you do marry, then you just, a lot of pressures. And Paul is saying, look, I have the right, I could Not for a particular purpose. And so this first section makes a couple of points for us. The first is that it is okay to answer back against an accusation. It is okay to answer back against an accusation. The accuser is not always right. You don't have to just take it on the chin. Self-defense is not unbiblical or unholy. Further, bless his heart. He's having a rough time. Further, at times, the cause of the gospel requires self-defense in order to keep preaching, such as Paul's case. Think about it. The the Corinthian church, they are on the verge of blocking Paul from influence among them if the critics have their say. Then what would that lead to? Well, it will lead to the type of thing that you would see if you went to Corinth today. If you go to Corinth literally today and you walk around, what do you see? You don't see a church. You see ruins. You see rocks. You see well, something happened here and the cause of Christ is no longer here. And that's what's at stake. That's what's at stake. And so the the cause of the gospel requires Paul to defend himself in order to keep preaching to the Corinthians in order to protect the flock from the super apostles that are destroying the church. Now, a couple years ago, I did not know we were going to have some uh, friends and guests with us from Rock Church today, but I have this in my notes, so here we go. A couple years ago, a former church planter friend of mine, who had been an ordained pastor for about five minutes, told me that during the church split drama that we went through, the mere fact that an accusation was made against me meant that I should step down for ministry. The day after he said that, he walked over to this building and knocked on the door, seeking access to this space for his church plant. So in other words, he's saying, Andy, you shouldn't be in ministry. And then he walks over here and he's like, hey, can I, can I be in there? In other words, what he's saying is, get rid of Andy, let me in there instead. I spoke to Alex Waddell about this and Alex said, never talk to that man again. And I haven't. The ironic thing is that verse 14 in our text, which we haven't gotten to yet, verse 14 literally answers the particular point of conflict out of which all of the problems arose in the scenario that caused that man to say, well, you should not be in ministry. If the church would have just Listened to what 1 Corinthians nine fourteen says, the conflict would not have existed, nor the other 50 conflicts that arose out of that. I'll read it and then get back into what I'm saying. Verse 14 says, even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. In other words, verse 14 says, pay your pastor. That was the contention. That was the point of conflict that out of that one conflict gave birth to 50 other conflicts. So, dear friends, please remember, sin gives birth to sin. Sin has ripple effects. Think about the most famous example. I wasn't sure if I should bring this up or not, but I thought of people who would really want me to. So here we are. Sin has ripple effects. So think about the most famous example, which is David and Bathsheba. David is supposed to be at war with his men, but he's not. So you have sin number one. Number two, David is lounging around his palace roof, watching the neighbor woman bathing, and he lusts after her. Sin number two. David tells his servant to inquire about that woman, and then he finds out that she's married to Uriah. So he's planning to commit the sin in sin number three. Then he sends for her to be brought to him. Some say that he raped her. Others say it was a consensual affair. The text doesn't go into details. But what is clear is that David just committed sin number four. And then he finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant with his child. So now he has to cover up his tracks. So he sends for Bathsheba's husband to come home to sleep with her and to cover up for his sin. Sin number five, in other words, lying. But Uriah sleeps outside of his house rather than enjoying the comforts of his wife while his men are sleeping in fields engaged in battle. So David begins to panic. So he has Uriah drink to loosen him up a little bit, to lower his judgment and his discernment and to increase his Freedom of mind and action. It doesn't work. Drunk Uriah is more honorable than sober David. Then David sends Uriah back to battle, carrying a letter to deliver to Joab the captain that says, quote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. Uriah doesn't know the letter says that, but he's carrying that letter and he delivers that. He he delivers his own death warrant to Joab. And he ends up being killed in battle by David's scheme through the enemy's sword. And so we have sin number six. I might have missed some, but there's six. In this one story, you have a man breaking the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth commandments in one sequence of horrible decisions. You could argue for more sins as well, but these are just some. In Paul's case, the sin of his accusers, because false accusation is a sin that is the most like Satan of all sins. The sin of Paul's accusers has massive potential implications, and he must defend himself to prevent the harmful ripple effects that are sure to follow, the sin that will give birth to sin after sin, if these sinful accusations are allowed to stand. So, point one, it is okay to answer back against an accusation. You don't have to just take it. Self-defense is not unbiblical or un- unholy. And at times, the cause of the gospel requires self-defense to keep preaching, such as Paul's case. That is an application point number one. An application point number two is, it is not worldly or greedy for a pastor to be paid a living wage for his work of preaching the gospel and shepherding the flock given to his care. Please note, it is the pastor's responsibility to not just preach but to also shepherd the flock. Let me say this. Thank you, PBC. Thank you, PBC. If you are a member here today and you participate in giving to support the work of PBC, thank you. Thank you for your generous and sacrificial support. I do not see a specific list of Names and total amounts given per year. I do not know the details. I have a general idea, sort of, but the longer the church exists, the more general and less detailed that idea is. But what I know for certain is that several, if not many of you, give very sacrificially and that this church would not exist without your generous and sacrificial support. I often brag about you all to other people and other pastors because it does not go without my noticing that we are the only Baptist church in Manhattan that has been started in the last, oh, I don't know, 10 to 20 years that I know of that is self-supporting. So take a step back, think about stats, think about organizations. There's really only one game in town as far as the Baptists are concerned, and it's, it's church planning, and it's the Southern Baptist. So Southern Baptist church planning. What has been attempted in the last 10 to 20 years, and of those church plants that have been attempted, how many of them still exist, and then how many of them have become self-supporting? I.e., the pastor doesn't have to fundraise, doesn't have to work a second job, doesn't have to go work for some other ministry, like, oh, hey, I'm a pastor, but I'm also in campus ministry. I work for Crew and, you know, I write for this Christian blog and I do these eight other things in order to patch together a living wage. I don't know of any other church of our type that pays its pastor a living wage. And so I say, thank you. I grew up in a church where my father was the pastor and the church did not support us. Financially, even at the point when I, I can remember being like eight, nine, 10, the church was this size, you know, 80 or so people in rural Florida could have paid the pastor living wage cost of living was, I mean, it was like 1999, just thinking about the difference in numbers right now, like how much a mortgage was in 1995 on a $30,000 house versus how much we're paying in rent per month in a Manhattan apartment. So I've experienced this, and I've seen a church that suffered as a result of not providing for its its leadership. So I'm not speaking to you right now, because y'all are doing great. So I'm going to look into the cameras and say, for those who are from other churches, who might be listening online or happen to be visiting with us today, please hear me clearly. Pay your pastor. Pay him enough so that his wife does not need to work to provide for the family. Pay him enough to be able to live in the area where the church is and where the church is seeking to minister. Pay him enough that money is not a point of stress in his mind, in his home, as he's paying bills at the end of the month. And he's watching that check clear to see if the rent's going to, is it going to make it or not. I've been there. That was my reality for years. Until PBC. Let me assure you, PBC, as well as people online who may perhaps listen to what I'm saying, the church, oh, sorry, the Lord will reward you for your generosity and your investment in the kingdom. And I mean you like as an individual, I know that like five or so of you give significantly and very sacrificially. I don't I don't. No newer people, I have no idea what newer people are giving, but some of the old timers when we were sitting here in 2020, 2021 and trying to figure out like, is there enough money to, and it's like, oh, well, the Smiths are giving a thousand and the Joneses are giving a thousand and so on. And, and so adding up those numbers from three, four years ago, I know a little bit of information. I know that certain people are giving very sacrificially. And so I want you to know that your investment in the kingdom of God, which is what you're doing, The Lord will reward you. When you give money to support your local church and its pastor, think with me practically. Every baptism that takes place is credited to your account. That's happening because the lights are still on and the church still exists and it would not be happening if not for your generosity. And mathematically, by the way, if we're not uncomfortable yet with this, let me push it further. The more you're giving, the more of a percentage of the share you have in what's happening. And that's accruing to your heavenly bank account. If you don't like that, read Philippians very carefully and you'll see this is exactly what Paul says about the church at Philippi, because the church at Philippi bankrolled some of his missionary journeys. So, for an example of this to be practical, uh, several years ago, a professor of mine was my most influential professor was going to take a year off from teaching to go to India and restructure a seminary there. Like he was going to go through and overhaul the curriculum for the entire school and basically set its trajectory for the next 50 years and help all their faculty as well with their own development to improve. And so it was an extremely important trip and very strategic. And he talked to me about if I knew of any donors. And I said, well, how much are you trying to raise? What's this going to cost? Now, because he's going to India and because the, at the time I don't think they had any kids or anything, the cost of living was very low and the expense, I mean, uh, the biggest percentage is like your plane ticket there and back. And he said for the whole year, it was going to be 30 grand. And I just said, okay. And then I went, went away and thought about it. And Then I made a donation to his fund. Not going to tell you the amount or the percentage, but it wasn't 30 grand. I gave him an amount because I wanted to have a certain stake in this project. Because I read the Bible and I see that the Bible says that if you put, let's just say, 5%, 10%, whatever, then you have a 10% partnership in this ministry in perpetuity. So I was like, hey, seems like a good investment. And right now I'm 22 years old at the time it was. And like I could I could do that. So someday hopefully in heaven I will meet lots of Indian believers who are like, oh, hey, so there was this pastor, you never met him, who was trained by a pastor that you never met, who was trained by a pastor you never met, who went to this seminary that you've never been to, but you helped fund a certain percentage of it. You didn't even know it, but they named a, a, a room after you, and it was above the doorway, and I want you to know I'm in heaven today because of that. That would be cool. Think about, like, all these babies that are saved. i Trenton here. Think about all these babies that are saved from abortion, and that... Perhaps some of them get saved someday, and then someone else that they lead to Christ gets saved. And then the people who are donating to make this whole thing possible, 10,000 years from now, you're in heaven and people are just still have time to mingle around and talk. And they're like, Hey, I'm here today because of your partnership, because of your investment. Are you still going to be thinking about those earthly temporal things, those meals that you ate that disappeared? probably not meals are important but investing in the kingdom of god is an internal investment moving on point 3 a pastor has liberty to seek employment oh this is like a subpoint of point 2 but a pastor has liberty to seek employment elsewhere to fund his mission efforts if that is deemed more advantageous for the gospel of christ So while I'm saying you're going hard after churches to pay your pastor, I'm also saying a pastor has the liberty, the freedom to not take a salary from the church if that is more advantageous to the gospel of Christ. There are people out there, there are pastors out there for whom it is more strategic to be what we call tent makers, which is a term that means a person who makes tents, which comes from Paul. In Paul's ministry, that's that was his job, his side hustle. And so we still use that expression today to refer to pastors who have a more traditional job and they're not paid by their church. So there are people for whom it is more strategic to be tent makers instead of full-time staff pastors. Not only are there people, there are also times where it is more strategic for pastors to be tent makers rather than full-time pastors. I can think of times of extreme financial hardship or times when a church is very, very small and you don't want to put undue pressure on a small handful of people. And so the pastor might say, you know what? Like the three families that are here are struggling to make ends meet and the other two families, well, the one of them just lost his job because he didn't get the job. And then the other family, like they're working minimum wage and I don't want to put this burden on them. So I'm going to get a job and then let things just grow as it is in this time. To make these sort of decisions... Uh, It is not sinful, but there are matters of liberty, which God has given as an option. So that is point one, my 16 questions in defense of gospel preaching. The point of all of that is to enable gospel preaching. And then point number two, uh, moving on in middle of verse 12, going forward into verse 18, no higher priority. Point two, no higher priority. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. For I I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me. In other words, I'm not writing this to guilt trip you, to force you to pay me. It would be better, better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with stewardship, what is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the Lord." So, my point is, no higher priority. This is the highest of all priorities. He is saying in verse 12, we endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. His top priority is, I want to see the gospel go forward. That's my top, number one, highest priority. He says elsewhere, the gospel is of first importance. So I would ask you today, where is this spirit today? Where is this mindset today? that we endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. David Livingston's hymn comes to mind here. It says, O Lord, since thou hast died to give thyself for me, no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for thee. Lord, send me anywhere. Only go with me. Lay any burden on me. Only sustain me. Sever any tie. Save the tie that binds me to thy heart. Lord Jesus, my king, I consecrate my life, Lord, to thee. Where is that spirit today? Where is that type of preaching today? This great emphasis on doctrine is good, but the call to dedication, the call to surrender, the call to say, actually, not only am I going to know a bunch of stuff about God, I'm actually going to live for God, Today, there are popular supposed Reformed Baptist podcasters who are attempting to make a movement to popularize the insane notion that Christians should only live in red states and are under some sort of divine imperative to flee blue states, to flee secular and hostile cities, to retreat to small towns in Texas. I'm glad we have a visitor from Texas with us today. And the purpose of this is in order to avoid their tax dollars going to governments that do wicked things. I guess they've forgotten about what Jesus said about paying taxes to Caesar. Caesar wasn't exactly a Christian prince, pun intended. So when I say, where is the spirit today? What I'm observing is something more like this. Lord, I will live anywhere you want me to live. Lord, send me anywhere and preach the gospel. I will preach the gospel anywhere you want me to preach as long as there's a Republican mayor. Could, could, could we get further from the truth of the, of the Great Commission? Is that possible? I'm not sure it is. This is a doctrine of Demons. Or, as I put in my notes, are you kidding me? That is the worldliest thing I have ever heard cloaked in pseudo spiritual pietism by a person who calls everyone else a pietist. Now, it's easy for me to mock such blatantly foolish and anti-Christian teaching as this, but what if we apply this to our own mindsets? What if we, um, apply it to our own lives? Now, please note, I hesitate to go into what I'm about to go into because while previous generations went to church expecting the preacher to convict them, and they have told me this, they're seeking out such preaching. They're looking for a pastor who will step on their toes and call them out. Our modern generation is more comfortable calling the pastor and rebuking him for calling someone or something out in his sermon. So I am hesitant. But let me consider one or two of our temptations today. It goes like this. Lord, send me anywhere as long as there's a Whole Foods close by. I can't be shopping at Key Foods. I can't go to a fruit stand, and I certainly am not darkening the door of a bodega. I will go anywhere you want me to go as long as the standard of living is up where I want it, you know? Lord, send me anywhere as long as it's a nice elevator building with in-unit laundry. Again, hesitant to go into this because these things are kind of real. But read missions literature. Read missions textbooks or church planning statistics. This is the number one reason why gospel preachers leave the mission field, including New York City. Because he says, God comes first, and she says, I come first. I'm not going to live in that type of apartment. I'm not going to shop in that type of grocery store. I'm not going to do laundry at a laundromat that is beneath me. And he says, but you told me that you wanted to serve the Lord with your life. And she said, well, that's not what I had in mind. There is so much that, could be said here, but I'm holding a great bit of things back. Let me just say this. If you would go to Pakistan for Jesus, don't marry someone who would not go to New York City for Jesus. Some people view New York City as this dark, God-forsaken city that it is. And they say, I wouldn't go there. It's not safe to raise my kids. But you're saying, I go to Pakistan. I don't care. My life isn't my own. And the other person says, no, I've got a lot of plans that I've got to accomplish. And by the way, I'm looking for someone to make that happen. To do so. To marry someone like that is to unequally yoke yourself with someone who's pulling their wagon in a different direction, and it will require you to either leave behind your calling or function at 30% of what God has gifted and called you to do. You'll be like a Ferrari stuck behind a New York City horse carriage. Nothing is more frustrating for that driver who is not even touching the gas pedal, and he sees the four-year-olds on their three-wheeled scooters zipping past him. While they are idling down the road, for those who don't have cars and have never driven, idling is when you don't touch the gas. Your car is just on, and it's in gear, and it just rolls. So you're idling down the street at four miles an hour, and you're unable to let the engine loose because you're stuck behind a horse carriage that is not going very fast. So, while we were on these hot-button topics, let me jump up and down on another hot-button topic for another couple moments. Please look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Paul is willing to go to great lengths to be able to preach the gospel in any and every circumstance. He will travel at his own expense if need be. He probably would even pay for others' expenses on his mission team. He is not doing any of this because it is a lucrative career. So this thing that I'm talking about right now is addressing those who, quote, charge for preaching the gospel. Don't misunderstand me. I believe that a worker is worthy of his wagers. And I believe a gospel preacher deserves payment or remuneration. But we've just covered that the gospel preacher's priority is to preach the gospel. The goal is to spread the gospel. There is no higher priority than to do that very thing. The goal is not to line their pockets. It's not to stuff their wallets full of cash. This is a problem, and it is a problem just in as much in Reformed circles as in prosperity theology circles. I have been told that some prominent Reformed conference speakers actually do, uh, what, what are they called? All right, so uh, Hannah, when you hire a lawyer and you have to make a payment just to have the services of the lawyer. Retainer. 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 There are preachers, there are famous preachers that have you do a retainer of X number of thousands of dollars just to have the opportunity to later hire them to come preach for you. It's astounding. The facial expressions that Makita and Trenton are making right now are just perfect. This is just as much of a problem in reform circles as it is in prosperity theology circles. But what makes it worse is when popular conference speakers charge the same amount as Joel Osteen while they're criticizing Joel Osteen. And I know this because I know their agents. And I'm sitting here in the crowd of five, 6,000 people and, and the preacher's going on a powerful monologue for. Two, three minutes in the crowd like erupts and clapping. And he's literally calling out Joel Osteen. And I'm sitting here thinking, boy, these people are getting real hyped up right now. If they only knew the truth, that there's just, there, there's deception. This, this is not true. It's kind of an act. There are speakers, speaker booking services. There are services for booking speakers or there are agents that you can go through to get these A-list celebrity preachers and they, they charge the same price as Joel Osteen. You can see it listed on some of these websites, In the reformed conference speaking world, there are only a handful of A-list speakers who do not have a set fee and an agent that ensures that, quote, their guy gets paid. Top dollar. So, whenever people ask me, Andy, is Nonconformist Ministries doing any more conferences? And I say, well, first off, we're closing Nonconformist Ministries. And secondly, no, we're not planning on doing any more conferences here in New York City. Why? Because it's nearly impossible to find a speaker who, number one, is al- aligned theologically, number two, popular enough to draw a decent crowd, and number three, doesn't charge 10 grand to come preach the same sermon that he preached at his last conference, which we could listen to for free on YouTube. Those three factors make it such a situation that it would just say, I don't think we need to do that. I'm not saying we wouldn't pay such people. But it means they're not charging us. When someone says, hey, I want to come preach for you. And I say, oh, okay, sounds good. How about next month? And they say, perfect, I'm available on the 14th. And then I say, okay. And they say, by the way, my fee is eight grand plus flight plus hotel and meals. And I'm like, oh, I didn't didn't know that. What I'm saying is those days are over. The guest preachers we're having these days are the caliber of men who would come at their own expense. In fact, all the ones coming from Arizona are. Well, their church's expense. They are men who are not doing this for the love of money or for the love of being able to put a New York, I preached in New York City uh, sticker in their Bible. but they're doing it because they love Christ and they love his church and they love his gospel and they love to preach his gospel. And in fact, when John Benzinger has guys in his church who would, who expressed that they would rather preach here than preach in the middle of nowhere in Arizona, he says, all right, you're going to go back to the back of the line, back of the list. Because he asked, and he was like, hey, you know, would you mind if we send pulpit supply to just give you a Sunday off every now and then? I said, that would be amazing. How about every two months or so? And he said, okay. So we're like scheduling things out a little bit. So I have made a resolution, personally, that these types of people that are not doing it for love of money, but are, doing, are preaching for the love of Christ and his church and his gospel, that these would be my people. That this would be my tribe and that this would be the type of character of men that I present to you to preach. Moving on, it's 1157, so let's go quick. For though I am free, verse 19, though I am free from all men, I made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without the law toward God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I would win the weak. I become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be a partaker of it with you. Verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you, do, that you would obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. But we, for an imperishable crown... Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So, point three is bringing this together. Bringing it all together, which is Paul's defense and liberty issues. So the things we just talked about, the money, food, and family. These are liberty issues that Paul has made certain decisions for the sake of advancing the gospel. Paul is tying these together both with his personal defense and his choice of exercising certain freedoms. To keep things as close to on time as possible, I will just read the notes I have from a particular commentator who says, quote, the athletic metaphor was widespread among philosophers in the ancient world and would have been especially relevant to Paul's audience since Corinth hosted the biennial Isthmian games, which were second only to the famous Olympic games. Here, Paul employs both the image of the runner and the image of the boxer. Paul found athletic metaphors useful on a number of occasions in his letters. We should, however, exercise caution in over-interpreting any given metaphor by seeking to apply every detail of the analogy to the Christian life. In this present example, it would be absurd to suggest that only one believer receives the prize out of all the believers who enter the race. Here, Paul's primary point has to do with how the person runs the race. In Paul's example, only one receives the prize, but obviously he's urging all believers to run like a well-trained athlete who exercises self-control in all things in order to achieve the greater goal. The analogy also effectively accentuates the contrast between the victor's wreath, which is only of temporal value, and the believer's crown of permanent worth. Remember the heavenly rewards which we spoke about. In context, the overall argument has to do with putting others before self in order to maximize one's effectiveness for the gospel. Remember my comments about using sketchy laundry rooms when it's not your preference. Which requires rigorous self-discipline. Specifically in context, Paul is concerned with abstaining from sacrificed, sacrificial meals tainted by idolatry, which brings the judgment of God as Israel's history illustrates. Close quote. So what's happening here is Paul is, he does this throughout his letters, but he is seeking to keep the end of the race in mind in his momentary event. Writing to the Corinthians, thinking about the last day. Pastoring while thinking about eternity. Speaking against the super apostles while thinking about eternity. He is seeking to keep that final judgment day in mind in all of these Things He is seeking to keep the end of that race in mind. And he closes his message in a particular way. But before we get into that, I would like to urge you, if you are not a Christian and you hear all of this speech about running races and Judgment Day, and let me assure you that if you are not a Christian, when that day comes... That final day when you stand before God and He looks at you and examines your life, He will find a life that has not lived up to His standard of perfect, perpetual obedience. But instead, He will find a life that has fallen short of His standards, fallen short of His holiness and His righteousness. And so, you will not pass that test, you will fail. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. So you are a sinner, as are all people. And because of your sin, you need your sins to be dealt with. And if you want that to be in a positive way, you need Jesus to be the one who takes those. You need Jesus to be the one who pays the penalty of your sins because you have sinned a great many times. And Jesus, that's the whole point of his life and ministry, was to come into this world to live for sinful people, such as you and I, and then to go to the cross and to die as a substitute, to take our place, the place that we deserve. Jesus, the righteous man, took the place of the unrighteous men and women in order that they could be forgiven. That is the whole point of the gospel. That's the point of the cross. That's the point of Jesus, is that he would come into this world to live, to die, and to rise again in the place of sinful people like you and me. Then on the third day, he rose again in victory and he conquered sin and death. And now he is calling you through the voice of the preacher to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And have your sins taken away. Have your sins placed on Jesus and his righteousness placed on you so that when the day comes that you stand before Christ and the question is, how are you getting in to heaven? The answer is, Jesus paid my debt. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I just want you to know that that message I just explained is the message of the gospel. The Lord calls you to repent and believe on that. To repent and believe in Jesus Christ. To turn from trusting in your, sin, your living in sin and trusting in your own righteousness. To now you're looking to Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection for you. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That is the only way that you will be able to come to the end of your race and hear these types of words. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us that we would be people who defend the gospel and that we defend gospel preaching, that we are glad to lay down our rights for the sake of spreading the gospel, that we make wise, careful, strategic choices, that the gospel would be spread above all, that we are not holding up our rights as more important, our preferences as more important, but that we're willing to, to let go of any, anything that might come in the way or prevent that spread of the gospel to see sinners converted, to be saved from their sins and to be added to the family of God and the body of Christ. We pray that you would work in the hearts of your people in the way that you desire to. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.